What is up, my friends? Welcome to Rebel and Create's Fatherhood Field Notes podcast, where I interview incredible fathers, gaining wisdom from their stories for you and I to grow in our craft. I'm your guide, Ned Shout, father to five kiddos, currently ages 8 to 15, and husband to my rad wife, Sarah, working on our 17th year of marriage. So yep, I'm in the thick of it, the adventure of fatherhood, and I'm working daily to rebel against the low expectations for fathers and create a world where fathers know who they are as they show up for their families. You and I have the greatest opportunity to impact our world through the way we embrace our fatherhood role. I believe the role of the father is to serve, guide, provide, protect, and have fun in the messiness of it all. I am so excited for you to meet today's guest, Warren Rustand. If you stumbled upon this episode, your life will be greatly enriched. He is 78, a father to seven, a grandfather to 19, married 57 years. He's been the CEO of multiple companies, sat on boards of lots of companies. He has led leadership organizations for young people, worked in the White House, played professional basketball, the list goes on. He has fully embraced life. And as you and I sit here in our current journey, we're able to look into the future. We're able to take this man in his life and apply it to our own. Take all his wisdom from all his years. And at the end of this conversation, go and apply that all the work that he has done in his life, take that into your own and spread that love into the life that you will live on your adventure of fatherhood. Enjoy meeting my friend, Warren. Welcome to another episode of Fatherhood Field Notes. I am ecstatic to be talking to Warren today. Warren, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. And I'm glad to be with you today, Ned. Thank you very much. Yes, you know, I had heard you speak at an EO event in Sacramento just about six weeks ago or so, and a few things that you said really resonated with me. You know, you're talking to a group of business owners, entrepreneurs, but two things that you said that really captured my attention to to walk up to you and ask you if you'd be on the podcast is the love I saw and heard from you for your wife, the way that you love your wife was just really amazing to me because as, as fathers and, and many, I think young fathers who might be listening to this, you know, having a deep understanding of that relationship and how key it is to your children's, their longevity of their life. So that was item one that I'd love to dig into a little bit. Uh, I guess three items. The second one was your living situation. You, you made a little comment about, you know, the family house situation in Arizona with, with your kids. So I'd love to dig into that. And then you made a comment about uh, I don't know if it was a Chinese proverb, but it was something about breaking your life up in 25s. Right. And I think many of us look at our lives, you know, I'd say the average age of the guy listening to this podcast is probably right around 40 years old. You know, and I think somewhere in the mix, we got this idea that at age 65, we're going to retire. And I don't, I don't really know. So I'd love for you to share that too. So those are the things that I heard from you that really resonated for me to go, I need his wisdom in my life as a father. Well, it's nice of you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed my time in Sacramento. What a great group of people. Good people I met there. It was really fun, so I enjoyed it a lot. And I thought our discussion was good. I loved the Q&A that followed the the actual talk that I gave, and I learned a lot about individual members of the chapter, which was great. So thank you yeah. very much for hosting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was wonderful. So to we'll dig into whichever one of those questions you would like to first. But to start it off, I'd like to ask you a couple of quick questions. Question number one is, how old are you today? I'm 78. 78. And how many years have you been married? 57. Wow. Wow. What uh, what an accomplishment. Uh, That's amazing. 57 years. How many children do you have? 
We have seven children, six boys and one girl. The girl falls right in the middle with three younger and three older brothers. And then we have 19 grandchildren. 19 grandchildren and counting, or is it going to stay around 19 I think it's going to stay around 19. And, uh, okay. and we live on a property in Tucson, Arizona, where our children have built their homes. And so we have our children and grandchildren with us all the time. So it's three generations living on the same property, which is just really cool. It's just so much fun. It's really great. So let's talk about that then, since we're here, is is where did the vision for that come from? When did the property start? How did that How did that come about? Well, so I was born and raised on a farm. I was very poor in Minnesota near the Canadian border, and we just eked out an existence, and we grew what we ate, and it was just a tough, tough, cold, hard, gray kind of Minnesota existence with brilliant summers, really wonderful summers. My dad became a successful farmer, but decided when I was about 12 to move to Southern California, which we did. I became Pretty a surfer, really enjoyed that. It was great. Loved the lifestyle of Southern California. Somebody handed me a basketball and said, if you dribble this, maybe good things will happen. By the time I graduated <laughs> from high school, uh, I had a couple of hundred offers to, to go play basketball. And I chose the University of Arizona for a lot of different reasons. The third day I was there, I met this um, really cool co-ed. She was just beautiful and fun and intelligent and just vivacious and of course, being a young, really great looking athlete, of course, I asked her out, right? <laughs> yeah. and she said no, and I couldn't believe it. She refused me, and I asked her out the next week, and no again, and the week after that, still no, and still. So I asked her out 53 consecutive weeks. She said no wow. 53 times. <laughs> the 54th weekend, I knew that the guy she was dating had gone to his parents' wedding anniversary, so I knew she was open for the weekend. So I asked her out again. Of course, she said no. And um, and so I got stupid and I started telling jokes and singing songs and dancing and whatever I had to do to get her attention. Finally, she was so bored. She said, OK, I'll have dinner with you. And by 1030 that night, we had decided we never have to see anybody else again. We were married uh -huh. two years later and we started our journey. So the question, the essence of your question, how did the farm come about? Having been raised on a farm, the values of farm, hard work, um, you know, basic stuff. Uh, we really wanted our family to experience that as well. So we started planning our life, the first four years we were married, we developed a plan for our whole life, a design for our life. And living on a farm was one of those. And uh, so we had attended this particular uh, party at this home in the middle of Tucson, Arizona. It happened to be 60 acres, but a home owned by a radiologist friend. And I happened to say, gee, if you ever decide to sell this, you know, just let me know. Six years later, I'm sitting at my desk in the White House working for the president of the United States. I get this call from this radiologist in Tucson, Arizona. He said, I remember our conversation and you said you'd be interested in this property if we ever sold it. Well, we're going to sell it. I said, I can't afford it. I'm working for the government for crying out loud. I don't have any money. <laughs> and he said, well, we like what you're doing and we like your family. And how about if we work out something where you can grow into it over a number of years, which was wow. just a blessing, just a blessing. Oh, yeah. So we went and we bought the property and we've lived there ever since for 45 years. It's been uh phenomenal and lots of fun. It's been a great place. We have goats and pigs and chickens and sheep and horses and, you know, lots of jobs for the kids to do and lots of work to be done. And, you know, I'll go home today from our podcast together and I'm going to clean out and muck out the corrals, right? I can shovel manure like anybody else does and, and just go do my thing. But, but the opportunity for us to live together as a family, to share common values, to share common visions about what a family should be and to show that love and affection day in and day out with all the cousins being like siblings and, I mean, it was mm -hmm. It's been such a blessing for us. So was the expectation as your kids are growing up, did they think I'm going to build a house on this property one day and live here? Or, you know, did that naturally happen? Did kids go off to school and come back? Like, what did that look like? 
Yeah, we really never thought too much about that or whether our children would be interested. We just wanted to create, some, create a place of love and space, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, our children all went to great universities. They then went off. They all lived abroad for at least two years, become bilingual, bicultural. It's part of our family plan and family vision. And then they um, and then they uh, came back and started their careers. And, uh, you know, we had two professional golfers in that group. We had a lot of really interesting people and they went and started their careers. And they they loved each other so much. They all got together and they said, how about if we go to mom and dad and ask if we can build homes on the property? And so they came as a group to us and said, how would you feel if we wanted to build homes here? And of course, you know, my wife, Carson, and I looked at each other and about jumped out of our chairs. I mean, that was fantastic. We had decided. Of course. About yeah. It took us three and a half years to get the property <laughs> rezoned for that. But anyway, so they built homes there. And it's just fun. It's just so fun to have everybody around. And we have such a good experience. Really, really lucky. So, Warren, when I hear you say this, and I'm, I'm, I'm 38, just made a big move to Hawaii with my family, and I'm, I'm sitting down with my wife, and we're casting vision. What I heard you say is, you know, you, you wanted to create a place of love. And what I can find myself doing when I think about designing my life is I can, I can think about, okay, well, I want to get a property, and I want to build homes, and, and become, like, very controlling right. and and not surrender to this idea of I'm going to create a place of love and then see what happens without a tie to the outcome. You know, my outcome might be, oh, that my five kids build houses here. How did your, were you tied to the outcome? How did you surrender the process and, and how do you let go of control and let life happen? Yeah, we've always let life happen. Um, and we feel in, uh, we feel serendipity and spontaneity and and uh, divine intervention and revelation may, plays a big role in everything, right? And so right. as a result of that, uh, we listen pretty carefully to the spirit. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we work pretty hard at being still and quiet so we can hear the voices that influence us. But we've always had a design for our family to be close together and be very loving. We've built our family that way. Um, and so everything, all the principles that govern our family and the way in which we interact as a family is all built around love and care and consideration and servant leadership. And when we do that, we find that relationships are easy. They're more relaxed. Control is never an issue. It's never been an issue for us uh, because we sit and collaborate about our plans and what we're doing as a family, and we build consensus. And there are times when there can't be some consensus, when parents have to effectively make a decision on behalf of the family, particularly when the family's young. We have to make mm-hmm. decisions for and on behalf of the family. But as right. children get older, they can participate in that decision-making process, and we want to li- listen to their voices uh, because they have ideas and they're smart. And, uh, and so we work through that process probably like a lot of families do. Uh, but our outcome is always let's create an environment within which our family, our children and grandchildren, want to be together, want mm-hmm. to be with us, right? And we can only do that through unconditional love, in my opinion. So it's more about the space you're creating, not necessarily the way that it plays out. Like that could be on a farm, that could be on an island, that could be in a in a house in the city. It's more about the environment that you're creating versus the exact way that you execute it. Exactly. Exactly. I think we create the context and the environment within, within which our families thrive. Mm-hmm. We be thoughtful mm-hmm. about that. We should be considerate of that. Uh, and let's be sure that we have some principles on which that's based. And you're right. It can take place anywhere. We can live in Alaska or we can live in Arizona. 
we can still yeah. create the space for our family to have love and affection and fun and adventure. We can do all those things. Great learning, right? We can do all those things. The space itself is inconsequential to what's happening within the space. Yeah. So how do you hold that loosely? So we kind of talked about it a little bit. So in your in your book, um, The Leader Within Us, your first three principles of leadership, right? As a father, we're a leader. So number one is clarity of vision. So just kind of sticking on that whole concept of what you're creating with your home, with your property, you have a clarity of vision, but yet you're holding that loosely and creating space to listen to the spirit or the voice within to then shift in how that's played out? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think that um, like horses, if we hold the reins too tight, we restrict their movement and mm. we, we create frustration for the animal. I think that's true of children as well as we, if we mm. are too restrictive with children, if we're too prohibitive with children, right? Um, I think we we don't allow their full development. We don't allow them to experience what they need to experience to become productive adults. So there's a very gentle and nuanced way in which we need to raise children. And, I, and, and I'm thinking about writing a second book. And I think maybe the title of the second book is going to be 18 Summers. And 18 mm. Summers is exactly the number of summers or years we get with a child. Yeah, I love And at that. 18, they're going to go to a university or move out and get a job or do a lot of things, become more independent. So we've got 18 years to influence them. And, and we need to think about those 18 years and how is it we want them to be when they're 18? What do we want them to have learned? How do we want them to feel about themselves, about others, and the world within which they live? And I think we gently influence that as parents. Now, some parents are more overbearing or harder, some parents less so, but each of us as parents have to find that guiding feeling for our particular family. And we have the same kinds of issues that lots of families have. Our second son is a special needs son. We have an autistic grandchild. We have a Native American son that we adopted uh, from the Navajo tribe. So we have a, a mixed family in many ways, right? We have all the experiences that every family has. And, and how we deal with each child individually is really important. Mm. Group-wise, we can do a lot of things, but each child needs to feel our, our unique love for that child and their unique genetic makeup. Yeah. Okay. So three questions come to me from that. Question one is, how do you balance that? I give the kids a lot of freedom to, I also want to teach you discipline. I mean, you live mm -hmm. on a farm. So, you know, it's like, oh, dad, I just want to sleep in today. So, okay. I want to let you be yourself, but I also want to give you discipline. What would you answer to the, the balance of that? Well, I think, first of all, that uh, in, in our little farm, uh, we have a couple of lists on our refrigerator as the kids were growing up. The one list said, to be a member of the Rustan family, these mm -hmm. are our duties and responsibilities. And so it lists my name, my wife's name, and each child. And when the child is really little, maybe it's just pick up your toys. As they get older, it's pick up your toys and make your bed. As they get older, it's pick up your toys, make your bed, and do your laundry. So it's progressive and incremental in terms of accountabilities and responsibilities. When a person gets up is pretty much dictated by what they have to do, right? And so mm. school, gets, school gets a child up earlier. In the summer months, there's work to be done, and we can mitigate that schedule for a child based on their unique needs, sleeping habits, and so forth. But the work still has to get done. There's still things that have to be done that we all agree to do. The second list is called incentive compensation. 
And on there, we have a list on every far- of every farm job available, the amount of money we'll pay for it, the date by which it has to be done, and a signature by my wife or I saying the job was done well. And so mm. it's now that our family can earn as much as they want to earn. They come sign up for it on a first come, first serve basis. And so they learn to work. And learning to work is a fundamental principle for a family and for a child. And then learn to save. Uh, you know, mm. I, I should say learn to work, learn to earn, then learn to yep. save and then learn to invest. So when our children leave our home at 18 years of age, we've never had one single worry about them, their ability to handle money because they've been making their money through learning to work and applying the principle of work their entire life. Now they can choose Beautiful. not to work. That's okay. If they don't want to accept any of those jobs and earn that, that's okay. That's their choice too. Yeah. Yeah. But they'll see it played out in the other, the other kids of the freedoms that they're given from the that's discipline right. that they have. Right. That's right. Okay. When you think about the family, the seven kids, the grandkids, and I know in your book, you talk about, I, I believe it's, is it twice a week or is it every day that you sit for an hour and think and, and kind of dig into the vision? Is How often is that? Every day, five days a week, I set aside 10 o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon, where I shut the door oh. to my office, turn off my computer, turn off my cell phone and think deeply about subjects that matter. It could be family. It could be an acquisition in business that we're trying to do. Um, it could be something about our management team. It could be a host of it could be something in the community, an initiative in the community that we're trying to do. Right. So but but I think we don't spend enough ponder, time pondering, mm-hmm, thinking mm-hmm. deeply. I, I think there's something to be said for time and space that help us determine clarity of vision. The first great principle that you mentioned a moment ago, I believe, for all of us is clarity of vision. And I think it takes yeah. time to get that. I don't think that's easy. But I think we can work at that to the point where we can walk ourselves into our future self three or four or five years down the road, see it, smell it, taste it, understand what that future is going to be, visualization of what that future is going to be, and then walk ourselves backwards, creating the milestones to our present state, knowing what we have to do to achieve that, right, to get that vision. And then what we do is the second great principle that I found in leaders across the board, political, celebrity, athletic generals, um, you know, everybody, corporate CEOs, is that leaders know where they're going. They just know where they're going. And so the second great principle is certainty of intent, meaning we have to act on that vision intentionally every day, just a little bit. And that'll move us toward our destination, toward that clarity of vision. And I think if we do that, our life becomes simpler. It becomes easier. We don't get caught up in all the distractions in life. We don't get sidelined by all the stuff that's going on in the world because we're clearly focused on where we're going. Maybe I could tell you a quick story, Ned, but about 25 years ago, I was having uh, a dinner with four mountain climbing friends of mine. And I asked the first mountain climbing friend, I said, what are you going to do for the next 25 years or so? He said, well, I'm going to climb some of the biggest mountains in the world. I I love to climb. I said, that's great. I asked the second, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to climb some of the highest mountains on the seven continents of the world. And I said, that's great. I asked the third man, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to climb Mount Everest by the time I'm 25. He had his clarity of vision was so precise. Mm. All those three, he had a clear view of where he was going. Well, what happened to him? His name is Jamie Clark. He lives in Calgary, Canada. He climbed Mount Everest at 21, 23 and 25 because he was so focused on his vision. Right. And I think sometimes we miss that. We get distracted. We go down dead end roads. We change our minds about stuff. I mean, you have clarity of vision. Your vision was to move to Hawaii, leave a really nice setting, living near your parents, 
and your two brothers. And it came to you how compelling the vision was to move to Hawaii, that this was important for you to do. That's the clarity that we have to have in our lives. And then we act on that clarity. Yeah. Yes. So the, the next questions about this then are, how often do you as a family, right? So, I, you know, I thought it was two times a week. It's two times a day that you sit down for clarity. Yeah. Um, for your family, do you guys do an annual family meeting, a monthly family meeting? Is there, is there anything like that in your guys' rhythm? Well, in our rhythm is a, we have a lot of things in our rhythm. Uh, my wife and I have some meetings and then we have them with our family. So at one night a week, we set aside as family night for our home and we all meet together. And that night we have a lesson. My wife and I prepare a lesson. When the kids were really mm. small, we prepare lessons. We want our children to see us as teachers as well as parents. And so what mm. are we trying to teach? Well, one night we might teach about patriotism. You know, one might, night we might teach about ethnicity or culture or language or uh, faith or whatever it might be, right? So yes, we pick a topic and we have a lesson that might be five, 10, 15 minutes long. As the children grow older, they begin to participate in the preparation of the lesson. As they're older still, they actually begin to deliver a part of the lesson and then soon gravitate to planning the whole lesson. In addition to that, that particular night, we all prepare the food together. All of us are in the kitchen together. So nine of us in the kitchen together. We've all got jobs. We're all preparing the food and dessert together. And we see that as just a family night of conversation and fun, hmm. right? So that's one. The other is we have an annual meeting with our whole family and we sit down and talk about those things that are important to our family. It might be estate planning. It might be where we're going on vacation as a family next year. It could be a host of other things, right? So, um, and then I have individual, what I call father's interviews every quarter with each child. So uh, we go down, sit in our master bedroom, so we have two chairs down there. I have a yellow legal pad and a pen. And all I do is ask questions. And when they're really little, I'll say to our little daughter, Kennedy, I'll say, what is it you want to do? She says, I want to make some new friends. And I said, well, how can we make new friends? And she said, I want to make some cookies. So she and I made chocolate chip cookies together. And she took them to these people she wanted to make new friends. When we met the next time, I asked her, how did it go? And uh, she said, well, I made new friends. So what she had done without telling her so she had set a goal and she had achieved that goal. And mm. so whatever mentioning goal setting, we have these father's interviews where we set, depending upon their age, their expressed things that they would like to have happen in the field of sports, academics, church, community, friends. And I just keep notes. I just ask them questions. What do you want to do in school? What do you want to do in sports? And I keep those notes, right? And so every quarter, I've got notes from every interview with seven children starting when they're three years of age. Well, what do you think happens when they're 18? I bind that up, put the dates on it, and hand them all of the goals they've set for 15 years. Wow. And without ever talking about goal setting, yeah. they've in fact set the goals that they've achieved over their 15 years. And so it's just another way of spending one-on-one -on -one time with a child and helping them realize their potential through questioning, not lecturing. And I think that works pretty well. Mm, mm, that is so good. As a father, as a guide, you are helping them to reach their potential through questions. Now, the way that you're talking about it, <clears throat> it sounds as though your children show up to these excited, uh, to the family night, family dinner night, family father interview. 
would you say that it's the questions or is it, is there anything else that has made it where your kid's not like, Oh, here comes dad trying to be intentional with me again? No, they don't. And, uh, first, because we try to make everything fun in our family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if a child doesn't want to pick up their toys, that's okay. Understand that children do that. But I would just say to Scott, who didn't want to pick up his toys, come on, Scott, we'll do it together. Let's have some fun. Yeah, and, we'll go, yeah. and, and they have fun picking up their toys. So the next time I ask them to do it, it's not that big a deal. Right. And it's okay. So I think sometimes yeah. we, we get so serious as parents. We mm-hmm. get so directional, so controlling. So, you know, we want to influence the child in such a way that we become overbearing. And suddenly we've created this cocoon within which a child lives. And we see in our society today, children aren't being exposed to the reality of life, the harshness, the toughness of life. Um, and I have a lot of parents who say to me as I talk with them about parenting, in fact, one said this in Sacramento, um, I just don't want my kids to have it as hard as I had it. My response is, the reason you had it hard is the reason you are where you are. Right, right. Adversity, adversity is a part of life. Children have to learn that at a young age, that not everything goes well. I can't protect you from everything. So if you're not playing soccer, it's not the coach's fault. If you're not doing well in the classroom, it's not the teacher's fault. Okay. Let's focus accountability and responsibility and have a child understand that they're in control of a lot of their life. Mm. Attitude, you know, intelligence, they have that ability. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to share a story with you from yesterday. And as I think that a lot of dads might run into this situation and then give up on their family, right? If I, if I didn't start this at three years old and I've got a 12 year old and they give me a lot of pushback, I might stop asking. So here's the scenario. Yesterday, you know, I worked from 4am until uh, three o'clock. I was going to go jump in the ocean and do some uh, bodyboarding with my son. My, his twin sister has been saying, I want to be a surfer. I want to be a surfer. So a week ago, do you want to go? No. Do you want to go? No. Do you want to go? No. So I'm telling her, you got to get in the water, get used to the waves, learn how to duck dive, learn, learn this stuff. And a bodyboard, boogie board is a great way to do it. So she went once, had a little scare, but she was out there. Hey, great job. Ask the next day, the next day, the next day. So yesterday, tons of pushback, right? I don't want to. I don't want to. Just tons of pushback. Very stubborn. And so finally, I said, she, she, you know, I was a little bit forceful, like, Hey, if you want to be a surfer, these are the actions you have to take. So she went out there with us. And then when we're out there, she's thanking me, right? (laughs) Like, this is great. Thanks. I I caught my first wave on my own. So the question is more, I mean, you can give any input you want, but the question is more for the dad who runs into that and says, fine, don't go. And then never asks again, where do you find as a guide that the father in a loving, not controlling, not too frustrated way continues to go back to help that kid realize their full potential. Well, I think first of all, you, the child needs to always understand that you love them. And secondly, always that they're mm-hmm. included. And when the timing's right for them, your daughter yesterday decided to go. She had yeah. said no multiple times. You never gave up asking her, however. And that's an important thing. She felt included, even though she was willing to say no, that's her choice, right? We're given choice as a gift in our life. And so choice is an important understanding by parents. So she chose not to for a period of time, but she chose to go yesterday and she had fun. The next time you invite her, it's likely that she'll go with you. So this notion of never giving up, always softly including them, always letting them know you love them anyway, 
that going surfing is not conditional for your love. Of course, that you're giving yes. unconditional love. You're going to love her whether she surfs or not. Yes. Right? And I told her that yesterday. This isn't about so, me. Yeah, Ned, some parents use conditional love. I'll love you more if you go surfing with me. Man, right, you never want right. to do that. That's sad. You never yeah. want to do that. So so it seems to me that you, you, even though you may have been forceful at one time, and I'd maybe ask you to back off a little bit on the force, but this notion that we're showing them love, we want them included, we want them to have that experience, they will decide the time sometimes as to when that occurs. So then if you see, okay, so say, you know, the other times I asked her, she's watching a movie with her sister, maybe a movie she's already seen. And I'm thinking, hey, you're watching TV for an hour and a half or two hours. And is that just me looking at that as a waste of time? Or do I want to coach her on thinking about, you say you want to be this kind of person, yet you're, you're drifting into just whatever happens to be in front of you that day. What would be your disciplined father thought around that? Yeah, I think that, I think that we want to uh, to continuously talk about uh, talk to them about their choices, TV versus surfing. But if you're giving her the choice, it's not mandating that she go surfing. If you're giving her the choice, she's free to make that decision. If you yeah. give that choice to her, right? And you should honor her choice. You shouldn't yep. make her feel bad. You shouldn't denigrate her. You shouldn't make her feel out of place in any way. That if if you give her the choice, honor her choice. Still mm. love her. Still invite her, but honor her choice. Yeah. No, beautiful, beautiful. Okay. So now I want to go back to the clarity of vision. And I want to talk about you and your wife married 57 years. When you talk about being the CEO of a company, it's a little bit, I'll say easier. And so you can kind of guide me through this. For me to go to the mountaintop, go get my vision and come back and, and let the troops know this is where we're headed. Now, even with a business, you want to let people in on the insight, right? And, 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 and give their input because hopefully you're hiring people better than yourself to help guide the company. But when it comes to husband and wife equally yoked, casting vision together, and God seems to put opposites together in some areas, right? To help us become better. Talk to me about that clarity of vision with your spouse to come into um, a direction you want to go together with your family. Well, as I said, we started planning when we were first married, uh, planning our life together. And mm-hmm. there were compromises, right? Uh-huh. Um, and there were ways in which uh, she wanted to live and ways I wanted to live. My wife and I are, are opposites, right? She's safety and security. I'm adventure and high risk. And so we're very opposite in that way. And yet we come together around everything, how to raise the family, our vision, um, everything about discipline, we come together on all that. Why? Because we talk about it. So one of the other cadence, part of our cadence, our meetings, is that every Sunday night, my wife and I sit down in that master bedroom with our two chairs, and we spend an hour or two hour uh, planning with our family. We go every, we go over every child. You have five children. We had seven. We go through every child. Mm. How's Eric doing in school? How's Eric doing with his friends? What can we do to be more supportive of him? So we go through every child. We then talk about merging our calendars together. So she always knows where I am. I always know where she is, right? We talk about uh, things that we may want in the future, family vacations, taking a weekend off together, whatever it might be. But every Sunday night, we're face-to-face, planning together, equally yoked, different views and opinions and thoughts, Mm -hmm. but finding ways to compromise to move forward together in love. Because if I love her and if she loves me, then we want that happy future together. There's no reason to have distress. I'm willing to sacrifice some things. She's willing to sacrifice some things. And we find the common ground. 
And I think that's really important. And sometimes we get so strident in what we want for ourselves that we right. don't bring our mate with us in a, in a spirit of collaboration and compromise. Yeah. And as you say, you know, so much of the time I think, okay, I'm going to add to my calendar, do a personal retreat. I'm going to add to my calendar, uh, do some planning with my wife. And it's almost like I'm just thinking about getting that thing done and then moving past it. And something you shared that's key is a lot of times we're just thinking about ourselves, right? Right. But you've set aside so much time, so like consistency in your rhythm that every Sunday night you're drawn back to, okay, this is us right? This is us. So at, like once a week, you're drawn back to that versus once a year, we talk about, I hear what's important to my wife. And then a year, a year goes by and we're doing it again. I just had 364 days to think about myself, yeah. right? Where you're cultivating this 52 times a year, you're meeting and reminded of what matters to you, what matters to her. Um, she's compromising, you're compromising. So there's this unity between you. So I mean, if we as fam, I believe that fatherhood and family is is in community is what can change our world is the, is is creating that space. And when you hear these simple tools that you're sharing with us, you know, family family meeting, meeting with your spouse, meeting with yourself. And I mean, you're showing two times a day. I got to do a check in with myself to make sure I'm 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 thinking deeply about where I'm headed in life. These decisions I have to make. That's huge. Those are yeah, huge it, concepts. Yeah, it takes it takes important time, I think, to do that. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And speaking of sort of our ego getting involved sometimes mm -hmm. and the way we think about things, I think it's important to change our language in a marriage and a family from I, me, my to us, we, ours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One's inclusive and one's exclusive. If we get caught up in talking about my family, my career, my car, my boat, my time, my surfing, whatever it is, to the exclusion of others in our family, I think we begin to separate from our family. I think it's a problem. Mm. But if we always are thinking about what can we do together, how can our family do things better, right? How can we as a couple experience the world differently? And my yes. wife and I have had a chance to travel all over the world together. And sometimes it's been challenging. I know I led a group of uh, YPOers, 800 of them, to India with my wife. We, as a couple, were co-chairing the event. It's a great event. Wow. It was really fun. Just before we left, I sold a company. We had done well. And I was anxious to get back and figure out what to do with that money. So I was very material in my focus. And so at the conclusion of the event in India, I was packing to get ready to go home. And my wife said, well, we're not going home. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I've arranged for another event for us. And I said, what's that? She said, we're going to Mother Teresa's Charities in Calcutta, India. We're going to work for a week in the Center for Dying Patients and a week in the Center for Adoption of Children with Special Needs. And I'm thinking, mm. oh, there goes the boat and the car I was going to buy, right? I mean, holy cow. And so <laughs> we went there, right? Because we compromise. I love her. I trust her. She knew that my ego was too big at that point. We'd had just had a big event we put on, got lots of accolades for that. We had sold a company, made a little money. And so my ego was bursting, right? And, um, and she knew I needed to calm down. And so we went and held patients who were in their last minutes and hours of life. Not, not one of them talked about boats and cars and houses. Right. They talked about family. They talked about the people they love. They talked what they're going to miss. They talked about their faith. And that was sobering. And then we went to the center for this, this orphanage, really, for adoptive needs, children, special needs, children, they're all missing an arm or a leg or an eye in the mm -hmm. Indian society probably would never be adopted because of the caste system. Mm 
Right. And there weren't enough adults to even feed them. I mean, we held them and we feed them. We kissed them, you know, for, for 15 hours a day for a week. Well, I'll tell you what, when I got on the plane to go home, money was irrelevant. It didn't right. matter. What mattered was our ability to listen and to love and to have empathy and to understand that life's more important than where we live or the car we drive. And we've tried to pass that to our children in every way that, um, Sometimes the most important decision we make is what we choose not to buy. Because hmm. we have the capacity to buy a lot. And sometimes we just ought not to buy stuff. So um, you know, we learn these lessons because of my relationship with my wife. She's been a great partner. She's a real leader. She's a true matriarch in that sense. And we are co-CEOs in our family. And uh, mm-hmm. I listen to her really carefully. She's really smart. Mm-hmm. Love it. Beautiful. Oh, so much that I want to take and re-listen, probably re-listen to this with my wife. Um, so thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, before I ask a couple of questions about the book, I'd like to ask about, for, I'd like you to share that Chinese proverb. Okay. Um, b- because I think that it's critical in the way that we view our lives, especially in this day and age. Um, so yeah, share it and let's see where it takes us. Well, I'd once read about a Chinese proverb that goes something like this, that we base our lives on a hundred years. The first 25 were born, were raised. The next 25 were educated. The next 25 we produce and the next 25 we give back. Mm -hmm. So when you ask my age at 78 years of age, what stage I'm in, I'm in the last 25 years of my life. And what I'm doing is giving back all that I can every day. And so I think we should see our lives as a progression. And there are increments to that progression. And they should be clearly defined and we should understand them. I think it's a pretty wise proverb actually as a way to think about our lives. And it's been very helpful to me as I try to put in context the life that we lead. You know, the earth has been around for millions, hundreds of millions of years. Man has been around for a long time as well. But the life of man, looking at it in the continuum of the earth, is a nanosecond in time. It's about 75 to 80 years. It goes that quick. It was just a short time ago I was a teenager. And then a young married and then a young father, right? And and then a grandfather. And, and so it, it moves quickly. And how do we extract from every day the maximum that we can? It's an attitude. It's a mindset. It's a way of thinking about the world. And I think if we can do that successfully as the Chinese do or as other philosophers, the Stoics might do it. Uh, Epictetus is a good Stoic to read. Um, I think we, we learn to keep in context and perspective all of that. That way, if a child explodes on us and gets all upset, it's not that big a deal. There's a continuum of time. There'll be a time when they won't explode and when they just want to hug you and kiss you and love you. And there'll be times when they need your advice. And we have to create and build ourselves for every one of those moments. And sometimes we lose sight of that and we overreact. We get angry. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. get upset. We Mm -hmm. become a disciplinarian, right? And we need to be that really, really good, righteous person who leads a a young person to their adulthood and through their adulthood. Mm, I love it. I'll tell you. So I'm 38. And in the last, since I saw you, your, your words have popped in my head three times. 
when there's these moments of me looking at my peers and going, man, my business should be, my family should be, and, and realizing, hey, wait a second, you're in that education, you're in the 25 years of education, have some grace on yourself with your business, have some grace on yeah. yourself, you know, you're learning, so what can you learn from this? So those words have, have helped me to extend grace to myself in probably just my expectations for where, you know, quote unquote should be, what does that even mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, well, I think thank that- you for that. Ned, if I might mention, I think sometimes we get caught up in comparing ourselves to others. And I think the group that we're talking about, that happens quite a bit, actually. The size of the company, the amount of money that we're making, our monetization of that when we exit the company, I mean, all those kinds of things. And so I got to thinking in my still and quiet time 25 or 30 years ago about that. And so I created a quote that I like very much. And it's just this notion of one success is relevant only when measured against one's own potential. Hmm. So your success, Ned, is measured against your potential, Ned, not against Joe or Bob or Sam or Sally or Joan out there. Right. The comparison doesn't matter. It only matters. What is my potential? What are my capabilities? And do I live to my capabilities? And if we do, that, I, if we do that, we've had a very successful life. It doesn't matter what other people do, because there will always be people better looking, more, you know, more talented, more experienced, have more money, have a bigger house. I can't win that game. Right. So why would I ever compare? My only comparison is myself. Am I living to the best of my ability and capability? If I do that, I'm going to have a good life. Yeah. And so I think that's such an uh, integral part for us to consider in this day and age is that if I want to look in the mirror and say, what is Ned's full potential? I am taught or lean into, I looked at Instagram, Facebook, this, that, or the other. So when I read, when I think of what is potential, you know, I may look at somebody's, someone else's life. So would you say that really understanding what you're capable of comes from your own personal, quiet self-reflection or where does that come from? Yeah, I think it does. I think it's helped sometimes by friends or others, advisors, others who see us that we can learn from also. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a lot of introspection that has to happen. Because, you know, we've been created in a particular way with Mm. particular gifts and talents. We have to be discerning about discovering what those are and then applying them in the world. And when we do that, we begin to utilize the potential that we were born with. And I think that's an important part of our understanding of life is what's my potential? What's my capability? And if I can just live as good as I can live with that capability, I should be fine with my life. I should be okay with my life. That also, I would suggest, makes us more humble. And and I think that's a big issue in today's society, particularly with social media. Everybody's out there promoting Mm -hmm. themselves. They're out there promoting a profile of themselves and images of them. Here's here's what I had for lunch, and here I am by the Eiffel Tower, and look at my new clothes, and it's all about me, me, me. Mm -hmm. And unless we can move away from that ego, um, we're always going to have a difficult time. We're always going to feel challenged, and we're never going to feel good enough. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, as we as we wrap up, I'm going to have one final question. But before we do, I'd like to talk about these principles. You know, we talked about the three principles of leadership, uh, clarity of vision, clarity of intent, and then power of values, which you've talked a lot about, like having the values to guide you on that journey. And as I think about the men listening to this who are who are setting time aside to say, I, I want to step into my full potential as a father. I'd love for you to share your five principles of personal greatness 
because first the father has to lead themselves, right? They're doing it right now. They're listening to you and I conversate about fatherhood and they're starting to take action so they can reach their potential. Share your five principles of, of personal greatness um, and, and how you would talk about that kind of from the father's perspective. Sure. The, the first, thank you, Ned. The first one is the, to commit to a higher level of discipline. Um, and that, that, I believe, if you have a family, I think you have to set boundaries. That meaning that you're going to have breakfast with them in the morning and mm. you're going to be there for dinner at night. And then when you walk through the door at night, how about shutting off your cell phone and not taking any business calls at night at all? That when you walk through the door, you're committed to being the best husband and the best father you can be for the next three or four or five hours, whatever it takes to get those kids to bed, to help your wife and to be co-CEO of the home mm-hmm. and, and just discipline yourself differently. So changing one's mindset is the first step in increasing discipline or increasing higher levels of discipline. So if a person wants to be an Olympic athlete, they have to be more disciplined than those who want to be uh, fun weekend warriors. Right. So this notion, this notion of enhancing and increasing our levels of discipline within the family as a father is really important. So fathers, let's lead the way. Let's decide that we're going to work hard eight to six, we should be able to get it done. If we're halfway intelligent, we should be able to be a good leader during that period of time for our business. And then let's shut business off and let's become great fathers and husbands. If we do that, I think we'll find a richness in our family that we won't see otherwise. The second piece of discipline is really important also. And that's this notion of what I teach, which is 10, 10, and 10. Every morning, have a routine to which you wake up and get you going for the day. How about trying to sit on the edge of your bed? As soon as you're awake, get on the edge of your bed, feet dangling over the edge and ask yourself, why am I alive today? Why has my life been preserved today? Meaning what's my purpose for my day? Mm-hmm. We know that people who live to purpose, live a higher life than those who don't have better results than those who don't. Then go and spend 10 minutes in gratefulness. However you want to do that. 10 minutes in gratefulness for all the things that we have in our life. Then go spend 10 minutes reading inspirational thought. All right. Don't read anything negative. Don't turn on TV. Don't reach for your cell phone. Don't do any of that stuff. Focus your mind on something positive. And then the third piece, the third 10 minutes, write in your journal those positive things that you've learned from the previous day. Experiences you've had. Now you're 31 Mm -hmm. minutes into your day and your mind is completely positive, completely focused. And then you go do the most important thing you're going to do all day. You're going to go work out. You're going to release those endorphins, right, that are going to allow you to accelerate your blood flow and get you ready for the day. Now when you leave for the office at 8 o'clock, you are fired up and ready to go. You're going to have a great day because you've prepared to have it. I've never been in a locker room with a lot of athletes. I had a chance to play professional basketball, as you know. I've mm-hmm. never sat in a locker room before a game and we sit around and tell each other, we're going to get killed tonight. This isn't going to work. We're not good. Enough. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's not how yeah. it works. You have right. to build yourself for success. And so mm-hmm. preparing, preparing our minds for success is the most important thing we're going to do all day. Changing our mindset's really critical. Now, there are all kinds of excuses. The first thing we'll hear from fathers is excuses. Oh, but the kids want to snuggle with me in the morning. Oh, but I have to do this or that or whatever. But those are just excuses, right? You got to get excuses out of your life. Then get up an hour earlier. Go to bed an hour mm-hmm. earlier. You get, there, there's a way to get it done. So increase the level of discipline emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually in your life and you'll find your life gets better really fast. We've got tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people who do this 10, 10, and 10 routine every morning, and they all report remarkable changes, remarkable yeah. changes. So it's just something you got to do, right? The second one is live with purpose every day. And that's what you do on the edge of your bed in the morning. You define your purpose. Yeah. 
some days you have to be a great negotiator. Some days you have to be a great team leader of your management team. Some days you have to be a great grandfather, whatever it is. But find your purpose in every day. And the third is, is to live with intent, meaning do everything in your life intentionally. Don't get swept up in doing things just because others are doing them or just because it's a trend or a fad. Do what it is you need to do and want to do to enrich your own personal life and do it intentionally. Intentionality really matters. The fourth one is make conscious choices. And that's the notion of when we're faced with all these decisions, we get about 40 million stimuli into our brain every day. Voices and choices. We hear a lot of voices. Mm-hmm. We're the ones, remember we mentioned choice early in our discussion, Ned. We have choice. We get to choose what we do every day. And we need to make conscious choices that move us toward the vision that we're living. And the last one is engage in a cause greater than self. The notion that in the end, we feel better about ourselves and we have better days if we give to others, if we give service to others, if we help others. And so it's really important for us to realize that if I'm having a bad day, then why don't I go serve someone who's having a day far worse than mine? Right, right. I'll be okay. And we have those people standing on the street corners in almost every city in the world. They're called homeless. They're called invisible people. How about if we make them visible? How about if we Mm. show a sign of respect by acknowledging them? How about if we offer to help them get to a social service agency or get some food or do whatever to help them in their next step in life? If we serve others, we feel better about ourselves and we keep a better perspective on what life is all about. So Mm. I think if we do those five things every day, and we work at that every day in small increments, small chunks, that we begin to live the life we were born to live. And we bring happiness and joy to others. And I think that's what our lives are all about. Mm. Warren, so good. So good. And the thing that I'll tell you, it all resonated with me, but the live with purpose, I can per- I can personally get stuck on. What's my purpose? But what I love in, in the, the mantra, the affirmation, the, the choice every day is what's my purpose today? And the more you seek that every day, you're not looking for this 50-year span. I mean, I might not be here tomorrow, right? And if I'm just sitting around every day thinking, what am I doing with my whole life versus showing up every day with purpose, I, I, I'm going to be on the right track to live That's out right. that purpose each day. So what a beautiful way to ask yourself the question is and those those five principles are beautiful. So I know we're wrapping up on time right now. I am so grateful for all that you've shared. There's so many things that you've shared that we could apply to our lives to be the fathers we want to be. Here's my last question to you. So 78 years old, if in 50 years, 50 years from now, you can peer into the lives of your children, into the legacy that you left through your day in, day out, living to your highest potential. What do you hope to see in your families 50 years from now? Good question. One is I, I want them just to be happy, mm-hmm. happy and joyful in the lives that they've chosen, the spouses they've chosen, the children and grandchildren that they're raising. I just want them to be happy. I want them to have the same experience I'm having every day. Last night, I was sitting alone doing some reading about nine o'clock and I got a little knock on the door. Two of our grandchildren, Mason and Porter, they said, can we come in and just have a conversation? And they came in and sat down on the couch and we talked for an hour. The joy that that brings, the happiness that mm. that brings to us is profound and significant. So I want our children to be happy. I want them to be contributors, not just to their family, but to society. I want them to make the world a better place. 
And so mm-hmm. how will they be engaged in making the world a better place? And then I would say the third thing is that I hope that they can learn to love others in a way that elevates other people's lives. We hear the topic or the, the theme of a rising tide raises all boats. We're the rising tide. We need to raise the boats around us. Mm. There's a, a religious leader who said a principle a long time ago that said, lift where you stand, meaning that wherever you find yourself in the world at any moment in time, lift those around you to a higher place. Sometimes that's a handshake. It's a pat on the back. It's a smile. It's a hug. It's whatever required to elevate those around us to a better place. And if we can all lift where we stand every day then we're helping the world in a significant way. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Warren, thank you for the man you are, the husband you are, the father, the grandfather, the leader. And I would just encourage everybody who's listening. I am deep into Warren's book, The Leader Within Us. And as I think about what we're doing here with fatherhood, I love this title because I really believe that everyone listening has the potential to be an amazing father, to be an amazing leader. And so it's already within you. It's just going to work on yourself to uncover that. And taking it from a man who's lived on this planet for 78 years, there's so much that we can gain from all of his stories and his wisdom. So I'd encourage you this book. The beautiful thing about this book is it's full of his stories and uh, you can just learn so much from it. So Warren, thank you. I appreciate you. And I look forward to continuing to, to learn and gain wisdom from you. Thank you, Ned. Let's have more discussions at your leisure, but good luck in Hawaii. Have great fun adjusting as a family. Have a wonderful new life together out there. I'm beyond words. To listen to a man who has fully embraced life is so incredible and so encouraging. I love his stories. I love his approach. I love his daily habits. And I have already gone through this again and listened and written down notes, things that I will apply to my own life. And even something little as... Putting my feet at the edge of my bed when I wake up and saying, what's my purpose today? Why have I been preserved for today? What's so cool about that is when I did that the last few mornings after having a conversation with Warren is I think about him. I think about a great man waking up next to his wife, putting his feet on the bed, and I'm able to take his methods and pour them into my own life as I show up for my family. And it's not that I'm trying to copy or duplicate or live his life, but if I can take somebody who has seen a level of success that I desire, I mean, 57 years of marriage, that's remarkable. I want to take those things into my own life and see what works for me and try and build on the things that he has done, build on the life that he has lived, and then pass that down to those who are coming up after me. Thank you to all you dads out there listening to the Rebellion Creates Fatherhood Field Notes podcast. What you do matters. Don't be like everybody else. Be yourself. That is who your kids, spouse, and community needs. This is your guide, Ned Shout. Together, let's rebel against the view that fatherhood has little impact and create lives engaged in mastering the craft of fatherhood. If you haven't done so already, please write a quick review. It helps spread the word that fatherhood matters. And if you know somebody who would benefit from this conversation, shoot them a quick text, letting them know what an incredible father they are and a link to this episode to help encourage them on their adventure of fatherhood. Talk to you next time. Thank you.